0: Welcome to Sound Business, the podcast that reveals how sound affects your business outcomes, from the productivity and well being of your staff to your sales and profit, your brand value, your marketing effectiveness, your customer experience, and all your key relationships. I'm Julian Treasure, chairman of the sound agency and five time TED speaker with over 100 million views for my TED talks about sound, and I'll be your guide as we discover the power of sound to boost your business's success, as well as your own happiness, effectiveness, and well-being. If I say the word design, you're probably immediately thinking about images of objects, a purely visual response. Design awards exist all over the world, but as far as I know, they're all given for how things look. And yet we experience the world in five senses, well, at least five senses, and all of those senses affect how we feel, think, and act. There's now a great deal of scientific research on the impact of all these inputs on us, from the more familiar visual factors such as colour, light, and shape, to the far less often considered, or designed, impacts of sound, smell, touch, and taste. If only someone could integrate all this research and help us to design things, and especially spaces, with real understanding of how to make all the sensory inputs point in the same direction, instead of clashing with one another. Well, in today's podcast, we talk to someone who's doing just that. Dr. Sally Augustin is an environmental and design psychologist. She's the author of several books. And she's a principal at Design with Science. She applies scientific findings to advise clients worldwide on the design of places, objects, and services in order to create specific cognitive, emotional, and physical experiences. So considering and integrating all the human senses in the process. Her work has been featured widely in the media, from the New York Times and Psychology Today to the Harvard Business Review, and she holds leadership positions in the American Psychological Association and the Environmental Design Research Association. I started by asking her why the eyes are so dominant.
1: I think it's important to remember that for many of us, vision is our dominant sense but not the only sense that's functioning at any one time. Also, we have to remember how we communicate about design. Often design is shown you know, from one person to another via some sort of image, still or moving. Sometimes there's a soundtrack associated with that image, but usually not. Then if people are going to be looking at a video of a workplace and I'm only going to be able to absorb visual information about it, That's what designers will focus on as as they work.
0: Do you think that's changed since we started being able to move images from one person to another? Was this the case hundreds of years ago when people were designing spaces? Do you think they were more sensitive to the multi-sensory way in which we perceive the world?
1: I think in the era before the... Photograph, people probably were much more attuned to the full range of sensory experiences because if someone who was going to be creating a space needed to communicate with someone who was going to own that space or manage that space or or some other way be responsible for it, one of the most effective ways to do that was to visit spaces that would share some sort of design element with the new space that would be being created. And that sort of live experience brings to mind sensory experiences beyond just the visual. Happily for most of us, all of our different sorts of sensory apparatus are working at the same time and it's important to understand that any human will be absorbing information through all those different mechanisms, channels at any one time. So it's a shame to not use information that could be obtained through a channel to create positive experiences. And also you have to recognize that all that information is always being absorbed because it will be combined in people's head to create an overall response to a space. And we have certain goals for different sorts of spaces and considering all the full range of sensory experiences can make achieving those goals more likely.
0: Let's get into the meat of this. How do buildings affect us and what are the things in us that get changed as we move from one space to another?
1: Space has a fundamental effect on what goes on in our heads at several different levels. So We can think about more mechanical level, if you will, in terms of hearing specific sounds or seeing certain colors, feeling particular textures, for example, that you might call it basic level of experience, but there's another level that's perhaps more significant in terms of affecting what goes on in our heads. And that is the way a sensory experience communicates to us non-verbally, the silent signals that it sends to us. We might link a color with a particular religious group or political party or part of the world, for example. And if we're thinking about sound, we can talk about things such as expectations we might have for a space and how the soundscape either aligns or doesn't align with our expectations and how that affects our comfort levels in the space. So I think we always have to remember that any place that we're encountering is affecting us at multiple levels simultaneously. People are the coolest puzzles. That's one of the reasons why I really enjoy my job because every day I get a chance to think about how a a range of different experiences that people will be having at any one time will combine in their head to produce a mood. I'm really concerned about mood because often it's particularly important that people be in a good mood because when people are in a better mood, a more positive mood, they're apt to think more broadly, which leads them to be better at problem solving and things like creative thinking and even getting along with others, which are all important in, in our world. So I think it, it's really interesting to work with the sort of information we're talking about today because of its dramatic effect on mood.
0: Definitely. We, we talk about four things at the Sound Agency in terms of the impact of sound, which are the psychological I- impact, so mm-hmm. mood, emotion, and so forth. Right. The physiological impact right. in terms of body chemistry, heart rate, breathing, even brain waves and the cognitive impact, how well we can think and work, and the behavioral impact, so what we actually do. Are all those four things in play for all the senses, do you think, Sally?
1: Yes. I think you could say that no matter what sense we might want to talk about in more detail, you would find there would be psychological, physiological, cognitive, and behavioral effects of an experience.
0: So let's track some of these through. I'm fascinated to to get into some of the practicalities of this, like with color, for example. Mm-hmm. I know people have done work, it's not my field, but there's been plenty of work on the impact of color on us. How valid is that? It, it, does it actually affect how we feel?
1: Research done around the world with really rigorous methodologies shows that colors have particular effects on us and, and what goes on in our heads. And when we talk about color, we need to think about the three different attributes of of color. The first we could think of as hue, and hues are collections of wavelengths. So we have reds and blues and things like that. And then we also have to talk about color saturation, which is how true a color is to stereotypical version of it, or how unsaturated color is grayed out color like sage green is less saturated than a color such as Kelly green and then the third attribute of color we need to think about when we're talking about the implications of seeing particular shades is how light or bright a color is so colors that seem to have more white mixed into them are are, are lighter so we find that colors that are not so saturated but are relatively light you can think of like a a sage green with lots of white mixed into it, that would be a color that would be very relaxing for us to look at, where a shade that's more saturated, but not so bright or light like a Kelly green, that's more energizing for us to look at. We do form cultural associations to particular hues. As I was mentioning before, we might link one to our country or something like that. There are a couple of sets of used to which cross-culturally we show very strong reactions. For example, looking at shades of red, even very briefly, degrades our analytical performance. And looking at shades of greens, all sorts of different greens, enhances our creative performance. If somebody asks me what color to paint their home office, I always talk to them about different shades of green because no matter what our profession is, it seems that from time to time, we all have to do a little bit of creative thinking. So these findings that I'm sharing with you are drawn from studies that have been done all over the world to the highest scientific research standards and are consistently derived.
0: And are they independent of cultural interpretations? I mean, You talked a moment ago about expectations and interpretations, I would always Talking sound about the importance of associations, right. for example, I know that in, I think China red is a good color, whereas in the Western world, it tends to be danger, Right. Um, does that factor in?
1: Actually it's interesting worldwide, people's first gut response to red is as a danger signal and it's thought that might be because of the implications of seeing red in our very early days as a species we might be bleeding or something we were trying to kill to eat might be bleeding, for example. But I think when we think about the three aspects of color, we can integrate both those fundamental consistent findings with the cultural findings. For example, shades that are not very saturated, but relatively bright are relaxing for us to look at, whether they're like Burnt umber type color, or the sage green with lots of white mixed into it, or a sort of smoky blue, etc. So, any of those sorts of colors will be generally relaxing. But once you think about saturation and brightness levels and, and lock that in, you still have a range of different hue families that you can choose from in any particular situation. And the hue family that you decide to work with can have cultural associations.
0: And what about white, which is the default color for offices and shopping malls and just about every other large public space I can think of? Where does that fit in?
1: White is a color that does have dramatically different associations from one part of the world to another that are really important to keep in mind. In the Western world, white is generally associated with relatively good things, cleanliness and things like that. But in many Asian cultures, white is a color of mourning. And there's a really interesting story that relates to the use of white in context of airline travel. As it turns out, even before 9-11, about 20 to 25% of the people on an airplane were scared to be there, concerned about flight. This has to do with control and things like that. But at any one time about that percent of people on an airplane were were concerned about being there. And an international airline did a promotion where they had their gate agents wearing white carnations. And that worked out pretty well for the flights leaving from, say, St. Louis in the United States or London, etc., But in Asian countries, it wasn't such a good pick because you were reminding people who were getting on a plane who were already a little concerned about being there about death. White is a really interesting color and it's something to use with caution.
0: Fascinating. And does this kind of cultural um, shift feed through into the other factors that we're talking about. For example, let's move on to scent for a moment. And I know that in the Middle East, they're much more fond of bass notes, of very heavy, spicy notes Mm -hmm. in scents around them. Whereas in the Western world, we might be more citric or high notes. Is that mapped through into the way that the scents actually affect people?
1: Well, scent is very similar to color or visual experiences in terms of there being some sort of really basic fundamental responses to particular odors and then some cultural variations on top of that. And I think when we're um, talking about scenting, it's important to um, distinguish ambient, like environmental scenting and perfumes that people might wear to express something about their personality. When you're doing research anywhere on our planet, you find out, for example, that the smell of lavender actually is relaxing. People in the aromatherapy world have been promoting lavender as a um, relaxing scent oh, for eons now and scientific investigations have indeed confirmed that the smell of lavender is is relaxing but then also we have to keep in mind that people, form very strong associations to particular scents based on related memories which relate to experiences they've had while smelling a particular scent. For example, if you had just incredibly wonderful, relaxing times hanging out with your grandmother and all your cousins, Christmas cookies were being baked throughout the course of your life that smell of those particular Christmas cookies will have a relaxing effect on you, but maybe not on other people, depending on what that particular smell is. So we all do have very strong scent memories, but there are generalizations we can make from one person to another that allow us to scentscape a shared environment.
0: Now, this is a fascinating question for me, the scale from individual to general, because it's one thing if you're designing your home, when you can absolutely pander to your personal preferences, whatever they may be, and they may be very varied between different people because of memories and associations. So then it comes to a shared space, let's say an office. How on earth do we cater for the fact we've got 50 people in this office with different lives, different roads to this particular space, different memories, different associations, They may take things very differently. Are there relatively universal standards or things to aim for in the different senses, which are generally going to go down pretty well?
1: Yes, there are. And when I'm thinking about creating a space for people generally, I go back to those sorts of rigorously derived scientific findings I was talking about a moment ago. So if I was working on the design of a doctor's waiting room, no matter where it was around the world, I would think about lavender or another universally relaxing scent that we didn't talk about was orange, the smell of oranges. You work with these universals, these rigorously derived place-independent findings, knowing that every so often... There'll be somebody who will not respond in the usual way to the experience. But if you don't work with these universal findings, the process of designing for more than one person becomes impossible. For example, any one person would find being in an environment that's not very saturated, but relatively brighter light, relaxing. But somebody in a waiting room or whatever might have a negative association to a particular color that is chosen. When I was a little girl I had to take this medicine for eczema that was really stunning blue green color. And when I see blue greens now the awful taste of that medicine is something that I remember, but not very many of us had to take that medicine and if you're putting together an office that or any other sort of space, that blue green can be a, a good choice for various reasons, and uh, you have to weigh the potential somewhat negative experiences of some uh, against the experiences of the group. So, for example, if a particular shade of blue green would generally be relaxing to experience, it's it's a good color to use in a place where many people might be together, and there'll be a few people like me who will like, in the course of a space's history, who will get a bad taste in their mouth when they see that color, or whatever. That bad taste isn't in any way life-threatening. It's having some people make small sacrifices for the good of the many.
0: We haven't spoken about sound yet, I'm interested to see how this maps through. We're pretty much against the playing of music in public spaces unless there's a very good reason for it. And that's precisely because of this effect, because people have pretty strong relationships with music, strong associations, strong tastes. Right. And if you're going to try not to offend everybody, you end up with something that's incredibly anodyne and dull and tedious. So the kind of sound that we have moved to over the years is very much... Biophilic. it's the sound of nature. Excellent. Very few people in our experience have negative associations with attractive forms of birdsong water, exactly. even, even gentle breeze in leaves, those kinds of sounds. Is there research to back that up as well?
1: Certainly. The research indicating the positive effects of hearing nature sounds, and again, we'd be talking about nature type, biophilic type sounds that are being presented quietly in an environment as a background, just like the sense we were talking about a moment ago would be quite subtle. The research with sound and nature sounds is incredibly strong, and you can definitely apply it with with confidence. There will be the odd exception, like there's somebody out there who on a lovely spring day was sitting in a meadow hearing all sorts of biophilic sounds when Suddenly, a wild pig appeared and started to chase them. And that one individual may have some negative associations to quiet <laughs> bird song and burbling brooks and things like that. But that person who got chased by the wild pig is incredibly rare. So you can definitely soundscape with nature sounds and be confident about the outcomes.
0: That's reassuring. <laughs> Now let's cut people down a little bit into groups because we've talked about individual preferences, but then there are different personality types. And these days when designing spaces, we have to think very carefully about things like neurodiversity as well. What are the guidelines for different types of people in terms of the way we would design a space for all the senses?
1: Why don't we start with thinking about personality and then move on to think about more aspects of neurodiversity. When we're thinking about personality and responses to space, there are a, a, a few factors that we can really readily discuss here in the time that we have together. First of all, some of us are more extroverted than others, and those of us who are more extroverted prefer a slightly more stimulating environment while we're doing things like knowledge work, etc., than people who are more introverted for example it seems that people who are more extroverted like me so i feel free to you know throw stones in this regard because it's my house whatever people who are more extroverted don't tend to do as good a job at processing this sensory information that they're exposed to as introverts therefore the introverted population does better with a slightly more curated environment. So you know this would have implications for, say, a space where I might do knowledge work compared to somebody who's more introverted. Maybe I would have a few more energizing elements around, say, an upholstery fabric on a chair that I could see that um would help me maintain the appropriate energy level to do knowledge work. A colleague who's more introverted, might prefer a a different fabric on that chair, but we're generally talking about slight variations here. Another aspect of personality is openness to different sorts of experience. Some people are very interested in having more unique types of experiences, while others are interested in more sort of traditional stimuli. So we could think of this in the Context of say a biophilic soundtrack. Some people would really get into hearing a soft bird call that was unlike any bird call they had ever heard before, while other people who aren't open to experience new experiences in this quite the same way would really prefer um, to hear the call of a bird they've heard all their life. Like in, in my case, being from North America, that familiar bird might be a robin or a sparrow or something like that. We can think about extroversion, openness to new experience. We can also think about things like conscientiousness in terms of personality and its implications, but we can also sometimes to some extent use personality-related consistencies in responses to sensory experiences at the group level. There are studies that have been done about things such as the usual personality profile of tax accountants or university professors, whatever. And when a profile like that exists, you can think about aligning personality with place. Now, when we're thinking about individuals who are neurodiverse, as that term is usually used, we're thinking about people who maybe have ADHD, which is attention deficit disorder or autism. Or we could also even think about people who might be depressed. For example, people who are depressed, as it turns out, experience colors differently from people who are not depressed. There's all sorts of expressions about depression and feeling blue or gray or whatever. It might be phrased slightly differently in different languages. But as it turns out, people who are depressed do see the world as more grayish than people who aren't depressed, which would relate to their experiences in a mental health clinic while they wait for appointments, for example. Now, if we're thinking about people who have ADHD and we're thinking about tuning places so that those individuals are successful in terms of focusing and being able to relax and things like that. We can think about things such as removing a little visual complexity from their world via organization tools, for example, and also removing distractors like television screens or computer screens. And we can think about things like a task light that creates brighter light over like a a piece of paper that someone with ADHD needs to be focusing on really can help. And there are other things. You can do besides using physical aids to draw people's attention to particular environments, particular spaces in the environment, removing distractors. Research shows that in a space that will be used by people with ADHD, it can be great to have stairwells that people can access and move from one floor to another so they can burn off a little energy as they work during the day when we're thinking about people with autism it's important to keep in mind that autism or being on the autism spectrum does vary from person to person and you could find some people who are very sensitive to sounds some people who don't respond to sound at all it seems so helping people with autism have desired sort of experiences in this in the space can require more individual work. But there are some consistencies there also. Some neurodiverse individuals have trouble with sleeping, for example. And in those cases, it can be great to have napping areas. We can also think even more broadly. For example, in any one organization, you definitely have at least some people who are colorblind. You want to make sure that signage, particularly signage that would need to be used in some sort of emergency situation, like to evacuate, is visually accessible to all. There'll be some people in any organization who are hard of hearing or who are deaf. And lots of different things you can do in an environment to make it more user friendly for people who are hard of hearing are actually good for the entire user population, just as many of these other changes I've. Talked about can be handy. For example, hallways that meet at really nice, precise right angles can be quite problematic to people who are hard of hearing because they don't necessarily hear others coming down those hallways, and you know you can have all sorts of different collisions. But if you slightly bevel, slightly round the spaces where hallways will come together, collisions become much less likely, and that can be handy. For the entire user population of a space. Yes.
0: So there are general principles that that can benefit lots of different people, but we can also perhaps start thinking carefully about teams and groups and characteristics. One of the examples I always remember is from an advertising agency where you had a creative team and they'd sat them next to the account handlers, which seemed a good idea because they needed to talk to each other, but the creatives had a boombox on the whole time. Exactly.
1: The, what a silly situation. Yeah.
0: And the account team were frantically trying to write a proposal for tomorrow and going completely berserk because they couldn't think with the music going on. Exactly. So yeah. Seating teams by noise output is, is one factor or noise needs or sound sure. needs, but you've broadened this out enormously. So I'm fascinated by the way that this is so multisensory. Let's finish by talking for a, very brief moment then about cross modalities because yes. you you can't take each sense in isolation no. because the senses affect one another. Are Correct. there any thoughts that you'd have on the way that we can design cross modally for for all these different people in these different spaces? It does sound awfully complicated.
1: I think that the way that people creating spaces need to move forward is to consciously review the full range of sensory experiences that people will have in a space. Just at any point, make yourself see, hear, smell, taste, feel. For example, if you're thinking about flooring, you can think about how the flooring will feel under people's shoes, but also what it will do to the acoustics in the space, just as you're thinking about what it looks like. So just being continually conscious of the fact that people are going to be processing any sort of environmental stimuli with all of their sensory systems. Just being conscious of that results in in better choices. Just always be saying in their mind, see, hear, smell, taste, touch, so that no sensory experience gets lost, ignored, or just plain not thought about.
0: Sally, I know you've got a new book out called Designology, I think, which is about making one's own space uh, multi sensorially appropriate and wonderful. Is there a website where people can go and find out more about your work?
1: Sure. People can find Designology on Amazon and to learn more about me or the sort of work that I do, they should visit designwithscience.com.
0: And as usual, we'll have a link to that on the podcast page as this goes up. Sally, this has been um, really enlightening and very encouraging. And I do hope that these principles that you're proposing here are starting to be taken on board by architects and by interior designers. They are. It's wonderful to hear because buildings affect us in so many ways. They affect our happiness, our effectiveness, our well-being, We didn't even have a big conversation about well-being and the well-standard and the green buildings and sustainability. There's so much to unpack here. My goodness, we could talk for hours, but I think we've covered so much already. Perhaps we have another go a little bit later on to talk about some of those other aspects.
1: I would enjoy that. I would look forward to it.
0: Well, as I said at the end there, there's a lot more to unpack in this complex and endlessly interesting area. We'll be taking a look at sustainability and certifications like the Well-Building Standard in a future podcast, and I expect Sally will be able to contribute some enlightening scientific perspectives on that. We never actually experience reality, of course. Our senses form something we call perception, which relies on what we sense, what we pay attention to, and what we make it mean. It's always the map, it's never the territory. The eyes may be the primary input for many people, but it's the full cocktail of multi sensory input that elicits and sustains our physical, emotional, and mental states, and often drives our behaviour, as demonstrated by the drop in abuse and attacks on staff on the London Underground when they started playing carefully selected classical music at hundreds of stations. Design must account for all the senses not just the eyes. Sound Business is brought to you by The Sound Agency, designing effective business sound since 2003 and is co-produced by Podcast Network Solutions, a full-service podcast production company who are ready to help you plan, record, produce, and promote your message with podcasting. To find out more about how The Sound Agency can boost your business with bespoke sound and to grab your free copy of our four golden rules for sound, visit thesoundagency.com forward slash podcast.